a shout out to our sponsor, Natera, and the great team there. They have developed a new kind of test called Signatera that can detect cancer recurrence as much as a year earlier than imaging. It's something that I use. Ask your doctor if Signatera is right for you. Welcome to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. I'm Trevor Maxwell. I'm a stage four colon cancer survivor, and I've got a message for other men. You don't have to go through this alone. What does it mean to man up to cancer? It means reaching out instead of isolating. It means having the courage to accept help along the way. To me, manning up isn't just about being tough. It's about knowing that we're stronger and smarter as a pack than we are as lone wolves. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. This is part two of two. Um, it's great to have Kellen Wellborn back with us. Hey, Trevor. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And this is our second part of our interview with Jackie Emery. So Jackie's husband, Rich, had a living liver donor transplant in November of 2021. This was a life-saving transplant for metastatic colorectal cancer. Um, so in part one of our talk, we were just finishing up. We, we had just gotten to the point where Rich and his donor, David. Had to go home. <laughs> yeah. They, well, they so they had been all day in this in this day-long surgery, essentially. Um, and, and, and Jackie's just sort of standing by like, oh, my gosh, is this going to work? Um, you know, her life is in the doctor's hands at that point. Um, so, Jackie, let's pick up at, at that. At that point, when did the team like – I'm sure they were – updating you along the way during the surgery like everything's going okay you know um was was that what it was and then when it was over what they tell you well it they did and because um betsy hadn't yet arrived in rochester the donor side so david's side and rich's side were calling me i was kind of getting from they're attached to the er both sides or in the operating rooms rather or so I was getting calls. They were side by side um, every couple hours updating me on that. First, how David, then how Rich and David and Rich and David and Rich and Rich and David. So <laughs> I was getting the updates. It was great. They were very thorough in terms of keeping me um, informed. And then afterwards, I got a call from Dr. Hernandez, I believe about 930, saying that everything went beautifully. He's very happy. They're in recovery. And I will be able to see them the following day. So water works at that point, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah. There is a lot of that. I was, uh, I don't know if it was more relief, exhaustion, everything, mm. a combination. I was also on the phone all day long contacting David's family as well, his parents in London, Ontario, his daughters, um, also Rich's son. He was. He lives in New York, but he wasn't in Rochester at the time. So it's a lot. My parent or my dad in Canada, family, friends in Atlanta. So it was a lot. It was exhausting. Yeah. So did you and did you have like a central way of communicating with everyone, or was it just like it was literally were... using the phone? Um, the majority of these people didn't have a cell. My dad definitely won't use a cell. Eighty-two years old. Uh, Davis wanted to hear me um, so that he could trust what I was telling him. He, I told him I would always tell him the truth about his dad and how things were going. So it was just better to tell him on the phone than in text. And I think that's important for family to hear your voice, to hear the passion, to hear your confidence, yeah. and to know that 
there's no way you can fake that kind of emotion. So for those of us who are, are sorry, for those of you who are just tuning in um, and maybe just picking up on this episode, please go back to episode one of this two-part series and, and listen to uh, to Jackie's tale leading up to this. Um, so the team at uh, University of Rochester, Strong Memorial Hospital, Rochester, New York, led by Dr. Roberto Hernandez Alejandro. Um, so this is the point where you're thinking, okay, so you've gotten him to transplant. They get the transplant. Everything goes well. Now it's like, oh, you're supposed to be able to celebrate. Everything's going to be fine now. Not so much, right? No, this is when the hard part begins. This is when the real work starts. And if you, if I had known, not you, obviously, if I had known that leading <laughs> up to it, I would have slept more. I would have probably eaten more. <laughs> I definitely would have, would have slept. But this is where the hard part begins. This is where the real work takes place for the caregiver. Yeah. So tell us, walk us through that post-surgery um, time. What were some of the challenges that arose and, and what, what did you find yourself facing? Well, first they do tell you, oh, you know, um, he'll look a little bit different, a little bit puffy, which I expected. I just, uh, I guess I didn't really expect to be walking into his ICU unit recovery with a Christmas tree hanging out of his neck. Uh, every single type of technology coming from the walls, his arms, his stomach, uh, his legs. Um, I really wasn't expecting all of that. And it didn't really take me aback because somehow deep in my mindset, I kind of knew that you weren't going to get to this point if you didn't have a little bit of help afterwards. Yeah. Uh, so the first thing he did, actually, they have one of those boards because he had Rich was still intubated at that time. So they had one of those boards um, where he could kind of write and pick the alphabet. He was pretty lucid. I was impressed. The, the amount of medication was minimal for him in terms of painkillers. And I mean, I knew he had a strong pain threshold, but it was, this was a little bit crazy even for me. And the first thing mm -hmm. he did was ask what time it was. And then he asked how David was doing. Those were his first two questions. And then before he nodded off, you got the little lu to make sure he knew i loved you he loved me and that was you know back to la la land so that was all i needed i knew he was okay you had talked about seeing rich hooked up to like everything imaginable um so i think it's we're still kind of in that really close to the surgery part where you're gonna see you know how he responds to having someone else's liver in his body and that is the key factor too is how do you respond I know that they talk about anti-rejection and I know it's, you know, obviously a big fear factor, but really from my understanding, it is not the scariest or the most um, worrisome of it all necessarily is the anti-rejection. It is more so the recovery, I think, mm. in terms of um, responding to the medications and making sure that his own body is healing itself as well, not just um, the liver production and growth and coordinating with his own with his own body's organs yeah totally um yeah so take walk us through that next next phase so the first couple of days are pretty are critical i mean he's in icu hooked up to everything and yeah um, i call it the christmas tree coming out of his neck he's intubated he's got uh wires coming out of his tummy he's got wires um in his legs uh everything you know the pick line you've got it you name it he's probably got it it's actually pretty quick how they come, um, how they disconnect you from most of that. He had the intubation out the next day. He had the Christmas tree out of his neck. Um, also the following day, 
So they disconnected him pretty quickly from most of everything. And then they moved him down to the seventh floor and he still had, um, I can't remember exactly what it was for, but the wiring in his legs, I believe that went up to his heart. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it was more so just gaining strength and taking in oral medications, transferring from all of the IV more so to the oral so that he could go home. And then um, day seven, homeward bound. And that's where the real work and the real kind of coming to grips with the reality of what it actually means now. Yeah. So, for. And like you said, you're in the hospital, you know, everyone's paying attention to you there. And then right. all of a sudden you're home and it's a whole different scenario. So what were you know, what were some of the challenges or setbacks or issues you faced once he got home? Well, it wasn't, something just didn't seem quite right. One of the things they talk about is vomiting. Um, with his medications, it's important that they take it um, in the morning exactly that time and at night at exactly the, the right time. So in his case, it was eight and eight to start with. And he got home on the Monday. There were some issues. And Thursday, and I guess at about 5 a.m. that Thursday morning, he started vomiting. He had a high temperature, uh, called the hospital and off to the ER we went. And they knew uh, we had called, the doctor on call had called ahead. So they knew we were coming. They got him right through into a bed and uh, into the ER. We stayed in there for a few hours. They were trying to find him a bed uh, for inpatient. And they did that fairly quickly, thankfully, and got him up to a trauma unit where he was there for about um, three more days, three, four more days. And that was scary because you really don't know why or what is happening or why he's back there. All you know is vomiting and that's a bad sign and temperature is a bad sign. And, and is this around the point when I remember there starting to be some uh, difficult emotions, uh, some frustration, maybe even some anger around the communication situation. For me, yeah, there was, because it's difficult when we're right there. This is when some of it started to kind of, um, I guess I should have taken it as foreshadowing and had a better sense of what to expect because we were preparing at that moment. Um, we, our understanding was that we would probably be good to go in about four to six weeks to leave. But that first part of it, um, he had a slight cutting edge and so they needed to put in a stent. So they would have to put in between that point and before we left, he would have uh, one more hospital visit uh, where post, I mean, post that ER point, where mm -hmm. they had to put in a stent. They, they had some meetings around that. So we would end up having uh, both a bile stent and a pancreatic stent. They wanted to actually um, keep that in for a while to make sure that his numbers were going down and that it was getting better. The problem with communication frustration and where the resentment built up is that there needs to be better protocol for post-operative care. The transition from having the surgery leading up to the surgery because everything is great they want you to do your best they want you to succeed everything is fantastic to that point and then you're there and okay great the post-op you're in there um you have to go back to the er we understand the doctors are there they came around they're very attentive because again you're in the first you're in the first wave post-transplant but as time goes on the you're on your own kind of feeling begins to sink in. There becomes less and less communication. There's no, even though there's um, 
a post-op coordinator, there aren't enough of them Mm -hmm. for any one person, patient rather, to be carefully monitored and treated. You're left to do most of that on your own. And I understand that from the perspective, not as a caregiver, but having been early in the phase of being one of the few patients lucky enough in the process to receive a living liver donor transplant. And I understand that it's still in the, like I said, the learning process, but it's extremely frustrating um, and extremely difficult to grasp the logical side when the emotional and the irrational side is far more prevalent and far more in the throes because right now my concern is rich or any particular patient that is post-op from a living liver donor transplant. That's my, that is my focus. My focus isn't whether or not you have the time. You should make that time or find someone who can to help us because we shouldn't have to wait any amount of hours if you're scared. Fear is a crazy emotion and will make you do crazy things to make sure that your loved one is cared for and done so well and immediately. So this is really where you're um, focusing your your call to action or, or advocacy, if you will, around that post-operative support for the families. Yeah, yes, yep. it's it, it's difficult, especially when you don't know which way to turn. And it's not like you can go to Dr. Google and figure out, well, OK, let's see what would be the traditional form or what would be standard of care. There isn't one. We don't know. Right. So we've got medications and we've got this book that we can read and this pharmacy we can call. And um, here when when we got home and we ended up having to go back to the hospital 48 hours after we got back to Atlanta and Rich was septic. This isn't always the case with patients. Some patients fly through it. Others, not so much. It takes Mm -hmm. a little while to get back to recovery. But we had we phoned and we're like okay well what do we do oh get him to the hospital well the hospital has no there was no coordination because we didn't know who to talk to in terms of transplant here they thought they knew but apparently the communication breakdown um was a little too much for any one person to handle and we had no idea what to do ended up in the er again no one knowing what to do and rich ended up having to fly back to rochester yeah, so I, mean, I should have had better awareness of what to do post-op. And that's the key is to make sure that we have that awareness post-op, not pre, but what to do afterwards. That's so critical. Right. Because you you got your team up there in Rochester, but then you're back down in Atlanta. There's lots of doctors involved. There's so many moving parts. And and it's not like, and, and people are, they're under-resourced to give you the assistance you need. And you don't know what's normal. Like, what's normal and what's not? When do we call the doctor? And then, you know, getting a hold of them, getting the right advice. I mean, it's just overwhelming. Absolutely. And not, you know, getting the bare essentials. I know, you know, if uh, you don't feel good or any one of your family members don't feel well and they've, they're running a fever, you know, 100, 101 is too high. You know, if they're vomiting with a temperature, certain there are certain mm-hmm. elements of being sick. You just know it's time to go to the ER. That's standard of care. I understand that. But, the doctors here aren't um, open necessarily at Piedmont, let's say, for example, to take on post-living liver donor transplant patients because it is so new and they don't like to take responsibility. Again, this becomes a financial number because of their reputation, their status, their potential donations, Mm -hmm. and it all becomes a financial and ego-driven community 
where no, not, no one wants to take responsibility for fear that something could go wrong. <laughs> right. So it's left with Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And hi, how are you doing up in Rochester? What do we do now? So that, you know, you mentioned that one of the things we had talked about for questions was sort of what part of the transplant process did you find most difficult for the caregiver? Navigation of the unknown. Sounds like that's where we're at. That's, um, it's better now, getting better now. We're uh, hopefully at a place where having labs once a week and in certain cases now with the, the neutrophils, like I said, the white blood cell count, he's there twice a week waiting for some updated labs, uh, getting a better grip on it, but it's been almost four months and it's been frustrating and navigating the unknown is exactly what it is because you really don't know. And every single time you stock your labs, and that is literally what you're doing as a caregiver. Not every single number is gonna cause you to go into a tailspin, but again, you know yourself when you see numbers trend in a certain direction that you don't want them to trend into, it becomes a little bit of um, a kind of ringing in your ear of a reminder, this could be, this could be, what might this mean? Where could this lead to? What do we do? Do we need to get more labs? Do we need to go to the doctor? Um, you oh, know yeah. yourself exactly I... <laughs> that. And if that doesn't go away post-transplant, Trevor, that's just it. That emotion as a caregiver, likely as a patient too, depending on how involved you are in your own care, doesn't go away. Yeah. At least I, not I, at this point. I, I still have a pretty unhealthy relationship with my my charts and portals and all that stuff. Like it's it's total PTSD for me. And like every time I open up one of those things and see a number in the red, I'm, my stomach goes up into my throat like, oh, God, <laughs> especially with my CEA, which has been reliable tumor marker for me. But uh, I get it. I get it. Um, can we? I, po- I know. And yeah, exactly. That's the numbers, you know, for yourself you understand. And it's the exact same thing. Those, those emotions as a caregiver, PTSD is exactly the right phrase for it because that does not go away. Balancing kids and, and patient and all your other responsibilities. Talk, let me hear your thoughts on, you know, the, the kids situation and and you meant, and we talked about the slopers before, I believe they got, have four children. Uh, Yeah. And actually Megan, um, I believe has five. So preparing ahead of time for what to do with kids. Uh, We kind of got lucky in that respect. Davis is an adult. Uh, He was 24 at the time. He's 25 now, but uh, we didn't have to watch out for him. But I know so many of the younger patients do have families with kids, smaller and of all ages. And it's such a terrifying time for the family as a whole. So to have a really good support system in place is the most critical for, I think, both for the caregiver and for the patient's recovery. I don't know. It depends on the kind of family, um, obviously, environment and their financial situation and their support system, whether or not you can bring them with you. I know Jess was planning on uh, having a B&B large enough that they could bring the kids and family down to visit. Uh, Megan and Mark made it a family vacation, so they left two weeks before Mark's transplant so that they could make it into a trip. And they had a and b with the kids, but they had a great support system as well, not only from their church, but family. So that's critical in, in your planning pre-transplant. And and go ahead and uh, give some of those specific self-care tips that that you've learned along the way, during, especially during your stay for the transplant and during that really intense period. Exercise. If Depending on the time of year, 
either go outside, take a walk, eat properly, take good care of yourself. You need to remember that if you're not healthy, you're not going to be healthy for your loved one. And that's critical. Eat properly. Make sure you're getting your nutrition one way or the other. Um, if you need a glass of wine with dinner, <clears throat> have a glass of wine with dinner. If you need extra sleep, take your sleep. It's so um, important that you're well rested and that your mindset is in the right space because it's easy for it to go off the rails. Been there. Self-care, you know, that's so hard to achieve, but you're so right. It's so critical. And and I think that you need to lean on your net, those people who are closest to you to sort of say like up front, like, look, I'm not going to want to sleep. I'm not going to want to eat. I'm not going to want to exercise, but you guys need to force me to. Definitely. And unfortunately, I wasn't in an environment with that mm. opportunity because of COVID. So hopefully now going forward, mm. people will be able to be a better part of a community and to be more and to feel more included. I felt really secluded and really isolated just because of the differences in travel. Nobody could come from Canada to uh, Rochester. Uh, financially, with the B&B, you have to make sure that you have all of the, you know, the financial obligations you need to meet to take that time off, whether it be work, disability, uh, whatever it is that you need to do to take that care. It's easier said than done. I wasn't very good at it. I'll be honest. Well, this is why you're, but, but now, you know, Hey, <laughs> give yourself a break. You have done amazing. It's unbelievable what you've achieved. And so, and this is an opportunity for you to look back and reflect and, and now you're paving the way for those who are going to come after you. So you'd mentioned there was a couple things that you would do differently um, do you have that, that little list there that you wanted to share with the folks who are maybe going into this? I think advocating for better pain management was on that list. Um, yeah, better pain management is to be more so aware of what the, what the patient is going through, knowing that, um, it's okay to ask for help. Mm. If, especially if you're, you know, if you're already at home, when you're in the hospital, it's one thing because it's easy enough to ask. But I know of experiences where some of the nurses have yet to understand and grasp the full magnitude of what is happening for the patient, especially if you're coming in post-transplant into the ER or something. Ask. Make sure they understand you're not in this because you're there for fun. You actually need help. Please have a better insight. Some of the possible complications. Um, in the grand scheme of things, Rejection is minor compared to all the potential possibilities uh, of what could be. And it feels like if there's something that could go wrong, we've experienced it, whether it's sepsis, infection, stents, all sorts of different things. Um, that's just some of the, yeah. of the items in terms of advocate for better pain management. I think that needs to be addressed in uh, the entire picture. And it also needs to be addressed depending on where you're coming from. Like, I mean, I don't know what it's like. Each state is different. I've only recently, you know, this past, uh, what, 18 months has been my um, introduction to American insurance, hospitalizations right. and, and how it works here, because it is very different than Canada. And that's, uh, that's a lot to take in and try and grasp. So I think that you really need to speak up. The caregiver really does need to instill that information and that advocacy for your loved one, for the patient, especially if the patient isn't able or just doesn't have the energy, which is often the case, or doesn't want to be a bother. That's another big one. Oh, 100%. It's like, 
you don't want to be that person who's like the nuisance. But at the same time, you have to be the squeaky wheel sometimes to actually get the help that's necessary, medically necessary. Absolutely. So I got a couple more questions for you. I do need to, we are getting to the time where I'm going to put you on the man up to cancer gauntlet of random questions because you're not escaping that, Jackie. I, you're, <laughs> you're, you're going on, but just a couple more questions to wrap up. And again, I want to thank you for, this is in, an intense conversation. It's a lot to, to look back on and, you know, you're doing a lot, you're doing great work by sharing your story and I appreciate it. So um, how does life look different? Um post-transplant now versus before the transplant? Oh, the fear, like I said earlier, that element of fear is still there. Um, Overall, it feels comfortable. And I hope it's not a false sense of confidence and knowing that that cancer is out of his body and knowing what his pathology looks like and that his future looks bright. Still weekly stocking of labs. And like you said, you're (laughs) still, you know, the PTSD and the patient portal of portal hell, um, <laughs> making sure that the proper medical dosage and diligence and preventative proactive possibilities, that's, that's a huge, um, that's a huge hurdle, especially in today's navigation post COVID. Lucky enough, we have the vaccines and triple dosed and Rich was picked out of the lottery at Rochester and getting um, a specific medication. So it's still tough, though. I mean, you're still, like I said, you're at the beck and call of recovery and making sure that you're taking proper care of your loved one, especially now with the immunosuppressive medications. Mm. And I'll go back to Rich with the current uh, lab numbers. He's singing tiny bubbles because I'm keeping him home. It's just not possible right now until his numbers come up for him to be wandering aimlessly through a show, a grocery store. So, yeah. So a lot of this is a practice in patience. And learning. It's a constant learning curve. Mm. So, so Jackie Emery is not going away in terms of advocacy and the, the colorectal <laughs> cancer uh, community. How do you plan uh, to advocate for transplant for other CRC patients? Well, actively continuing colon town, I am, um, collaborating, I hope in the future, to do a docu-series on potential patients and following through, not just post-transplant, but pre-transplant leading up to what uh, their experiences are, not just from the point of view of the caregiver, but also from the family and the donor, and hopefully putting that out there. Great. That's where I'm at. I'm not going away. This isn't, this disease isn't going away, so I'm (laughs) not going away. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Jackie. Thank you. All right. It's time. Like I said, you can't escape. I have four. I have four diabolical, I think, questions for you. Actually, no, they're not. They're not bad. Um, So now that we've shared the intense story of, you know, liver transplant and all this stuff, we like to lighten it up and just remind everyone that even us families going through stage four cancer, and, and all the shit that comes with it. We can still have fun. We can still have a good time. There's joy in this too. So, right? All right, here we go. Uh-oh. Who's your favorite celebrity from your home country of Canada? Oh, geez, my favorite? 
I knew. See, I knew that was gonna. Tr- you, oh. You're gonna have a hard time. There's so many. I mean, where do you even? What do My you do? My favorite celebrity. You're gonna laugh. Oh no! I'm gonna say Here he's a go. celebrity, but he's a singer. Michael Bublé. Michael Bublé. <laughs> you're making. <laughs> My daughter Sage, who's a singer, would approve of that choice. Oh, good! Oh. I know everybody else is rolling their eyes in the back of their head. Well, now I have I have one of his songs that's coming into my head, so we're gonna move on. Um, thank you. Okay. Though. Um, what's your most used emoji? <laughs> my most used emoji is the uh, stunned face. But like the you know the eye popping. Oh one. yeah, the eye popping stunned face. I like. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. It's like, tell it. me this isn't happening. Seriously, <laughs> what is happening right now? Awesome. All right, a couple more. If Jackie okay. Emery could could if Jackie Emery could bring back any fashion trend, what would it be? Oh, that's funny. Um, okay, I'm gonna say this, and you guys are all gonna hate me, but honestly, I'd have to go back with. Uh, low-rise jeans low-rise jeans see that's the what's happening now is everyone's bringing back the like super high-waist mom jeans down i know here. that's why and i can't stand <laughs> that that my like, 70s uh, flaming no no low a low i'm a fan of low-rise i mean come on thumbs up to that well, I, ho- I hope so bring it back then bring it Just back start it. let's bring it. start the trend start the trend Trev. <laughs> all right last one uh okay. what would be your talent if you were miss world It's not a comedian. Um, what would be my talent? I would have to say um, driving the sane insane. Driving the sane insane. <laughs> that honestly would do it. I'm. I think I'm. I'm fairly competent at doing that at this point in time. I mean, that's a unique skill. So I like that. And also, I will throw on there for you, uh, okay. Spartan Spartan beast. You know, you could show up in your Spartan outfit and like go over any obstacles that are put in your way. So being a Spartan competitor is very much like what you've done with Rich. (laughs) That's actually a great analogy. And having said that, my first race of the season is coming up this Saturday, the Spartan Super in Atlanta. You are a force of nature. You, it's just amazing what you, what you've done. And let's not, you know, leave out Rich out of this. Rich, we love you, man. Yeah. We know that you have done your own. So this show has been focused on Jackie's journey as as the caregiver. But we all know that Rich is a warrior and a champion. He's the driving force behind it. So shout out, Rich. We love you, buddy. And and Jackie. Thank you so much for coming on not one, but two episodes of the Man Up to Cancer podcast. Uh, let's keep in touch. I'm going to be obviously following you uh, on Facebook and watching the advocacy as Thank it grows. So and much. hopefully we can spread the word around around liver transplant um, for those who it makes sense for. So thank you Absolutely. very much. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. If you want to support our mission, visit patreon.com backslash man up to cancer. Monthly subscriptions start at five bucks, less than a single cup of coffee at some establishments. And if you know a man struggling with the isolation that cancer can bring, let him know about us. The Wolfpack doors are always open. Big shout out again to the amazing team at Natera. 
developers of a new kind of test called Signaterra that can detect recurrence as much as a year earlier than imaging. Ask your doctor if Signaterra is right for you.